Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and we actually have a second episode with our friend Grace here today from the UK, who's going to share about her experiences attempting to access care um, in the United Kingdom, and especially in rural areas. And if you haven't listened to Grace's first episode, I would highly recommend you doing so, so that you have all of the background of her really interesting story. But Grace, maybe do you want to just give like a one minute overview of of your story, the diagnosis process and and go into accessing care? Sure. Thanks, Laurie. So, um, so, yeah, I'm nearly 50, uh, undiagnosed and I'm now thinking very seriously about trying to access a diagnosis. Um, uh, Although um, I am not yet diagnosed, it's not that I've not been in touch with mental health services. You know, I have. Um, accessed for a variety of different mental health services since I was around 21. Um, mostly private counselling, to be fair, um, kind of paid for private counselling. Um, but that's largely to do with, you know, the lack of services really uh, across across Scotland and and through the NHS and the the, the fact that you that you kind of have to be, um, you know, quite acute probably to to access those um, secondary care type you know levels. I I, I guess. So, so yeah, um, I'm at the moment waiting to see a psychologist, which I access through the staff support service. I, I work a day a week with the NHS. I'm on the board of our local national health service, um, regional regional health board. Um, and because there was a lot of money put into staff support during COVID, um, I've been able to, to access a, a psychologist um, through that. So I think probably that will happen in about four weeks now. Um, it's not going to be a hideous waiting list. Um, had I gone through as a regular patient, you know, the waiting list would have been way over a year, I think, um, which I probably still will do because this psychologist won't be able to diagnose. Um, I will have to kind of be diagnosed by a psychiatrist, I think, if that were going to be the case. Um, but I, I just want to, you know, this. I'm hoping to access this psychologist really just to to have the opportunity to talk about my BPD in a bit more detail because I've not really gone there particularly with um, the other health professionals that I've seen and they've certainly not wanted to go there with me particularly. So, um, so yeah, that's what I'm, I'm kind of hoping for from this. Yeah, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes, yeah, it is the healthcare providers that don't want to go into it and they don't feel comfortable talking about BPD either. So I can't remember, do you work in health full time as well or is that just the one day a week? Yeah, so um, I work in the community sector. So I've um, set up and now manage a social enterprise that's like a community focused social enterprise doing capacity building work with charities and community groups mainly but also um, I've just got another contract with the NHS actually to um, gather um, the stories of disabled and uh, women uh, disabled staff members and and female staff members Um, so you know health I I work across health in a different kind of way but more community focused really Um, but this this one day a week thing that I do with the NHS I've been doing for the last eight years and as a um, a kind of scrutiny role um, on the board. They, they bring people in who have got a range of different skills, including people with lived experience, 
um, etc. So that's kind of what what my role is. And and on the board, I also chair the public health committee, for example. You know, that's one of the roles that I have. That, that must that. have been fun for the last few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. We've talked a lot about <laughs> vaccinations, as you might as you might yes. imagine, and, and other I have things. No I know, and we were kind of like, you know, head bang on desk when they started to talk about things like monkeypox. We were like, no more. I know, I know. I work in healthcare too, and I was like, I don't think we can handle this. To be perfectly honest with you, if you could just, if you could just uh, not let this thing happen, that would be great. Um, (laughs) So, although it seems to have been slowing down, which is good. So, given your kind of like working in healthcare slash adjacent like community services, had did you know about borderline personality disorder? And how did you find out about it? Yeah, so I I knew about it because um, working with the LGBT community, um, I was encountering adults mainly, um, you know, who fit the criteria for borderline. And so I had, and who some of whom were diagnosed um, themselves. So it started to kind of come to my attention then. And at the time I went to a talk by a psychiatrist um, about borderline with, with my kind of clients in mind, um, but I think, you know, I'd said in my, my previous episode that, that it was so stigmatising and so awful the way she was describing um, people with BPD that, you know, immediately for me, I was like, well, that's absolutely not not me. Um, and so that kind of put me off again and took me down a different, you know, just, just I didn't really think about it at that point. But but it did keep kind of creeping back um, for me. And, I you know, I read a couple of books and stuff like the Buddha and the Borderline, for I think, was one example that I, I read. Um, and there was another one. Oh, I can't remember what it was called. Get Me Out of Here, maybe? Something like that. Um, I think you know, I've read that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were things that I, that, I, that I did sort of, you know, resonate with and then others that I didn't resonate with quite quite so much. But again, those were slightly older books, I think. Um, so uh, it, it was on my radar and, and I did, you know... The first time I accessed counselling was was through the university and I was about 20, I think. Um, and, you know, my counsellor at the time had said, I don't think I can work with you anymore. I don't think I've got the skills to help you, you know. Um, and she referred me to a psychiatrist at that point um, who I saw and who said, well, I don't think there's anything particularly bad wrong with you, so I can't help you. Um, and so I just felt really lost at that and abandoned at that point because, you know, I was like, I'm too sick for this therapist to work with me, but I'm not sick enough for this psychiatrist to work with me. So where where do I actually fit? So, yeah, you know, going it alone has been quite a theme theme for me, really, in terms of supporting, you know, my mental health in some ways. Um, but I have had to sort of rely on um, private counselling at different times um, to help uh, to help me through. But but never, never once really have any of those private counsellors ever said, you know, actually, I think some of the things that you that you're talking about could be could be borderline, um, and you know, I've also had you know input from psychologists um, a couple of times, um, but they were more about specific specific things, the impact of sort of sexual trauma in adulthood and things like that, and various other bits. But again, you know, nobody really suggested. And then I I went to see another psychiatrist who was actually a friend um, that I'd met through the Buddhist stuff that I'd been doing Um, and I just wanted an off-the-record conversation with him to say look this is kind of what I'm experiencing you know I'm um, you know regularly self-harming I'm having these explosive episodes you know my relationships are really stormy and um, you know I hate myself most of the time and I've got an eating disorder and you know and I think I could have BPD but you know again at that point 
you know, he'd, he'd sort of said, well, I'm not surprised you might have thought that. However, because you've had friendships of over 20 years and a, and a relationship of, of this long, you know, you can't possibly have BPD. Um, so again, you know, that just made me think, no, I don't. And going back to the sort of private therapy bit. And then the, the latest sort of um, statutory support I've had was when I finally kind of sought help for uh, bulimia. Um, and that was in the last sort of few years. And I saw a psychiatrist in advance of that um, to be um, assessed as to whether I needed or should be referred to the eating disorders clinic. Um, and again, he went through lots of things, but he wasn't. He was a he was a locum psychiatrist actually, and he was pretty dreadful to be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, he just kept going right, right every time I said something, and uh, and you know, but I, I did get the referral to the eating disorders clinic. Um, but again. You know, it, it it didn't feel particularly helpful because it didn't it didn't join all the dots of my symptoms. It focused very much on the bulimia, and rather than the fact that the bulimia and the kind of binge eating and stuff was triggered by other stuff, and it was how I was mm-hmm. feeling about myself and how I was, you know, managing interpersonal relationships and how I was managing to regulate my emotions and all of those kind of things, which was was what were was leading to the kind of disordered eating in a way rather than just focusing on the practicalities of disordered eating itself do you know what I mean I 100% know what I what you mean I when I was a teenager I was sent to like anger management therapy and it was such bullshit and I was like this is not gonna help me at all and it didn't because of that exact same reason it had nothing to do with anger management it was all about the emotions I was experiencing and so without like trying to address those emotions there was literally no point in going to anger management counseling. And so, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you can treat the symptoms, but if you have no concept of like where the symptoms are coming from or why, what's the point really? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, and I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I probably wasn't helping myself in that situation either because I would occasionally say, Oh, and at one point I thought I might have had BPD, you know, kind of brush it off in that way. Um, but, they, you know, rather than I think I have BPD, can we please explore this? Because shame and fear and stigma and all of those sorts of things as well. But, yeah, I, I kind of wish they they had maybe hooked on to that little, little bit yeah. of a, I, I was giving them there and maybe said, right, OK, well, let's just look at why you think that and what this is all about. And let's let's dig a bit deeper into that. But it didn't. It, it didn't didn't happen. So you know, for for me now, you know, and again, listening to a lot of your you guys stuff and and the people that have been on, just talking about things like self advocacy and things like I, I kind of I'm at the stage now where I know I just need to really be quite insistent, I suppose, around yeah, I want I want to look at this and I really need the space to do that. And and I, and I've also had in my mind what what is it that I'm hoping to get out of this because I don't. I don't just want a label, you know, that's not what I'm really looking for. I'm looking for, for help, you know, so skills-based help, ideally. Um, so, so as long as, you know, that, that I need to keep focused on that as well, you know, um, uh, around actually what's, what's the point in, in all of this? Well, the point is to get some skills to help me actually live a better life, you know, a more tolerable mm-hmm. life. I think that's such a great point because like some people hate labels, some people love labels, but at the end of the day, it really only matters for you. And sadly, sometimes it matters for the services you can get into. Right. So like, I know here 
at least for the program that I was in, I needed to have a BPD diagnosis from a psychiatrist to be able to get into dialectical behavior therapy. But realistically, like the diagnosis for some people in that circumstance might have been really, really hard for them. For me, it was super beneficial, but it's all individually based, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's what I'm kind of hoping for is that a diagnosis will open doors. And if they don't give me a diagnosis, but they still open those doors, then then great. You know, that's absolutely totally. fine too. Because it, it could well be, you know, particularly now that I'm older and, you know, I've had to learn skills myself over over my life to kind of manage elements of my BPD anyway, um, that, you know, maybe I wouldn't, you know, fit the, exactly the diagnostic criteria in in terms of all, all the symptoms all of the time anyway. You know, I meet all of them you know to varying degrees of severity at different times um but yeah I'm really hoping it does but then there's that whole issue about again living in a rural area you know because we don't have there's no dbt programs here I know that for a fact you know there there is in the neighboring rural authority but it just depends on how your particular authority chooses to spend its its money and we also really struggle here I don't know what it's like elsewhere but um, we really struggle to get staff here and to recruit um, because it's a rural area and most people want to live in the cities and stuff. So, so you know, I'm not saying we don't have really good clinicians here because we absolutely do, but we have less of them and we do rely a lot more on locums. Um, yeah. So, you know, which costs a lot more for our health service. And so there's there's less on offer. Um, so well, and, lo- lo- and like locums, like bless them for doing the work, but at the same time, they're not that consistent care that you really need. Right? No. Like, no, it's inconsistent at best and yeah in in Canada it's very similar I work a lot with rural and remote health and um especially COVID I mean it really really I don't think people understand how much of a crisis the healthcare system is in in terms of staffing right now but yeah there's definitely a lot of like agencies that have to go in and like provide care for short periods of time, but like something like dialectical behavior therapy, you're never going to get the full program and the full benefit. If you're just like seeing somebody every once in a while, when they're able to like do their shift in your, in your rural community or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's interesting too, because obviously, you know, you guys run your super feelers club and stuff, you know, from the uh, group, from the, from a peer support model which I think is great but I really notice in our health authority and it's not just around BPD but it's around many things is that there's a real lack of trust around you know kind of community-based um support you you know not just even a a peer support model and um you know kind of person-led but even sort of community-based voluntary sector organizations are not trusted in the same way yeah um it's you know it's like we've got you know I've, I've got a qualification and I've got a psychology degree therefore I am the you know best person to to be doing this and actually know a mental health um group over here that's run within the community isn't isn't best place to do that and certainly people themselves are not best best place to run that because what would they know you know so and, and there's definitely that attitude that I that I sense here which is which is just wrong apart from anything else and also it's inefficient because actually if we were to boost community-based responses then actually an upstream upstream support then it wouldn't get to the point where people were needing these these secondary services you know so um I think I think they're really missing a trick um and I really hope that at some stage there's there are kind of peer support and community-led things all over the place because I think it'd be really beneficial 
Yeah, I super agree with you. I My master's research was about peer support for BPD. It was like a, a, a qualitative analysis of the Superfeelers Club participants. And one of the kind of actions that I was telling the health system they needed to take was to increase the access to and ability for people who have um, lived experience to provide peer support that still, it can still be supported by the health system um, for those additional supports that might be needed, like, you know, referrals or, you know, crisis management or something like that. But at the end of the day, peers are way cheaper, super effective, and can like prevent so many hospitalizations that cost the system like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year. Whereas we're, if we just put our trust in people who actually get it, I think we could save millions of dollars and be able to reinvest those millions of dollars into care for the people who really need it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I've been accessing health services, mental health services for the last 30 years, and I've probably got more out of listening to this podcast than I have from any of and, and that's not to disrespect any of that because because I've had some really good therapy, but actually this has been enormously helpful for me in, in my journey and, and also just in the way that I view myself differently. Um, you know, it's definitely lifted a lot of shame for me, which was also a really kind of big, big trigger. So it's it's been hugely helpful. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, that's like a huge honor, of course. And it's what keeps Sarah and I going, I think, is is knowing that like people can't access care, but they, they also can't access people's stories if there's not like avenues like this that can really provide hope and comfort for people. But we also still need services, right? Because yeah, without, yeah. without services, Sarah and I wouldn't be here to, to do this, right? Absolutely. So you said that the Rural Health Authority or whatever it was called, Rural Health, was it agency authority? Um, it's like a, a health board. Yeah, health board. Okay. So yeah. there's, they have DBT at the like, neighboring community if services aren't accessible within your area are you able to access care from a different no no not for things like dbt i mean um, it's common practice to do that for other things so for example cancer pathways and you know um other other things like that we have agreements because we just don't have the ability to do certain procedures and and kind of treatments here also things like gender reassignment and all that kind of stuff but we no not in relation to the mental health stuff you wouldn't get a referral um it's interesting though because this psychologist that i'm going to see through the staff support service is from that neighboring authority because but that's only they have an agreement for the staff so that if you need psychological support, you're not having to get it from someone that you then have to work really closely with. Um, so it's from that staff side of things, which is why as a board member, I'm getting it so that I don't then have to kind of have my clinician turning up at committees and me having to scrutinise their papers or whatever. But in terms of my diagnosis, I'll have to go through here. So yeah, no no access to DBT. That's so frustrating. And are there private DBT programs? Like, I mean, obviously private DBT is very expensive and not accessible to everyone, but should that be like possible to pay out of pocket for? Is that even an option in your area? No, I've go- I've Googled it. You know, I mean, I, I, pay, I pay a private therapist who's great and I'm really pleased I've got him and he does our couples therapy as well, which is really good. But no, he's not, he doesn't do DBT. And the, there's not really anyone that I'm aware of through sort of Google that that does DBT and certainly no groups or anything. Any groups that I've kind of found have been 
quite far away and like you say just hideously expensive to sort of access yeah. any kind of programs totally uh, inaccessible to us um certainly um, and what I, what I thought was really interesting as well like the last time after christmas during uh, quite often struggled during christmas and um after christmas i went to my gp to ask for sort of psychological support and a really positive thing that they've done recently is put community psychiatric nurses within gp practices um so that you can get kind of early access to community psychiatric nurses so that was great i got that within a matter of weeks and you know she did it's only like two or three sessions that you're able to do and she gave me some self-help resources and stuff which was you know helpful ish at the time but she she'd said when i was describing what was going on for me that she would she wanted to make a referral to psychology but because i was accessing private counseling she couldn't refer so i would have had to give up my private counselor to even get the referral which is going to be you know well over a year to even access um, a psychologist through the kind of normal patient route so that that i always don't get that either where you're not able to kind of do both in a way you know Um, yeah it was the same for us when i went into dbt um because i did it through like the hospital um, but outpatient and so it was paid for which is great but we were told that we had to stop seeing our other clinicians outside of the program Um, And the program was just groups. And I mean, they say that you're supposed to do that because they don't want like conflicting information coming to you. But at the same time, what that often means is like you just said, you give up your provider that you have a trusting relationship with. He potentially fills your spot. And then in a year when you're finished DBT or when whatever, then you have no supports and you have to start from like square one. And it makes no sense to me that that's what the model is. Um, But I think that's pretty standard at least in like a public system like Canada and Scotland have yeah and it's a, and it's a barrier because again I was just like well I don't want a referral because I don't want to I don't want to give up this therapist and particularly because he does the couples work with um, mm-hmm. my wife and I it's really important for us to have that kind of space that we're able to kind of reflect together um I hate to and, say this but if I were you I would just lie yeah well I, I did the last time good which is why I'm, good. Why I'm getting the referral to, to borders yeah Yeah, because I mean, like, again, that self-advocacy piece, the system is broken. We know that the system is putting up barriers that don't make sense. So at a certain point, you got to just look out for number one and, you know, be okay with that. And I work within the system. So I'm sure that, like, I mean, I'm not I'm not shy about saying that, like, you got to do what you got to do. Right. I did the same thing when I went to DBT. I moved. And I moved like two cities over. So like not very far, like geographically, like probably like half an hour away, but I needed an address in the original place that I lived. So I just kept using my old address because otherwise I'd be kicked out of the program because even though I just moved like half an hour down the road kind of thing. So. Yeah, I've I've wondered about that myself, actually, because, you know, my my mum stays somewhere else and in a city. And, it, you know, I sometimes hazard a guess that they would probably have DBT. And I wonder even if some of that stuff might be online now. So sometimes I even think maybe I should use her address and see see where I kind of get get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the, at the same time, the other sort of activist part of me is like, yeah, but this is just bullshit. And not everyone has the opportunity to do that. So totally. You know, yeah. I need to I need to kind of challenge the system from within, I suppose. And and, you know, I'm feeling much more confident about that now. And don't get me wrong, like I'm nervous about seeing this psychologist and I'm nervous about the diagnostic process because I'm, a, I'm nervous that there'll be crap 
and you know b i'm nervous that they'll stigma you know they'll they'll have this kind of st- stigmatizing um view as well and then part of me is probably also nervous that they say well no you don't have bpd thank you very much and and then i'm like yeah but I, but i do but where does that leave me and it's interesting because you know i, I said that to my wife again before i came on i was like i sometimes still have this slight imposter syndrome you know and probably because I'm undiagnosed and she gets that because she's undiagnosed autism but you know she she is really kind of cynical um and when I said to her that I thought I had BPD she was like no you don't absolutely not and then I um made her she hadn't heard of it before but I made her read loving someone with borderline personality disorder which to her credit she did and she was like oh my god you absolutely have BPD (laughs) yeah so yeah and she and she you know I think she thinks I'm more BPD than even I think of BPD when because I'm like no I don't have that I don't have that she's like are you kidding me you know so yeah they see stuff in us that we don't necessarily <laughs> see right I know totally well I I wish that there was just access for everyone I mean that is the goal right but given there isn't <laughs> and given like the wait lists for those of us who may have the ability to access eventually are long and fraught with like many barriers to entry as much as self-help is not the same as counseling and not the same as dbt there are some good resources so there's that uh green dbt skills book and there's a blue dbt skills book and people always have their preference i like the green one um i I can't remember the name of them off the top of my head but they're easy to find and to just go through those kind of like as a journal almost can be super helpful. And one of the things that was really interesting in my research that I did was one of the findings was that a lot of people who weren't able to access DBT, but, or counseling at all, but ended up going to the super feelers really found that like a huge benefit of going to super feelers was hearing people who had gone through DBT talk about the skills. And then what they did is they would then grab, get the workbook, they would pay for it or whatever And then they would go through the workbook. When we would talk about a skill, they would go look it up and learn that skill themselves. And I thought that was such a cool outcome of the super feelers, which like obviously tooting our own horn slightly here, but like um, peer support in general is like, okay, well, I'm going to take things into my own hands now and learn these skills because I have to. And if the system won't let me, I guess here's where I'm going to, here's where I'm going to learn it. And I mean, you're always welcome to super feelers. I know it's probably at like three o'clock in the morning for you. Um, we do have that issue with the UK, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm definitely going to come along to super feelers. Um, not this next one because I'm away, but um, I'll, even if I rock up in my pajamas, I'll, I'll come oh, yeah. along at some point. We've had we've had um, people from yeah. like the Philippines, England, like all these places. And they're, they're yeah. like, if I fall asleep in the middle, I'm so sorry. We're like, that's OK. Like, you yeah, you. it's all good. Yeah. Do you know what? Do you know what's interesting, actually? And I, I probably should have said this in my last episode when we were talking about autism. But there's a book that I bought my wife which is DBT for neurodivergent people um and it's been written oh. by it's been written by a uh, an autistic person with ADHD who's non-binary and also is bipolar and also recovering from BPD that lives in Australia sunny wow, that's sunny a lot of intersections yeah. right there Mid- yeah many intersections and um, they're they're like an advocate as well but it's actually really good this book and it's really simple and color-coded and so for my wife you know she finds it 
because I bought, we, we both have the Green DBT book, which I've not been very good at working through, and neither is she. But she finds this book much more accessible because of the way that it's kind of framed. Um, and and yeah, and for for autism, the DBT stuff is actually really helpful too. So I think we're I think we're going to try and work through some of the skills based stuff together, so that we're at least doing a little bit of peer support stuff. Yeah, um, totally. So yeah, and then you know you're also speaking the same language then. Right. Yeah, and exactly. that's so important to like, to be able to say, Hey, I'm going to go practice this skill now and not have that kind of be completely lost on the other person. Then they know what you're doing. Um, if you could send me the link for that, that book, um, I will put it in the show notes. Cause that sounds like a really, really, really helpful thing. Cause I mean, let's be real. The green skills book I like, it's not a fun read <laughs> and it's not, if you had a learning, um, like, any learning issues or like English was your second language, like anything like that, it would not be probably very helpful. Let's be real. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, whereas this other book is, is much simpler and, and also talks much for neurodivergent people anyway, talks much more about kind of sensory issues and, you know, what you need help with and how you can communicate in a space to doodle and draw. And it's really, it's really cool actually. Oh, okay. um, I'm super going to buy that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'll, I'll link, I'll link it to you. Definitely. Um, so yeah, I think you know we'll we'll just sort of do it ourselves a little bit, and then I'm kind of hoping that that you know the the services when I do finally get access are helpful. But I just feel much strong in a in a much stronger place to self advocate now as well, which I think will probably make all the difference to to my experience. I think, and you know, if they can learn a little bit along the way, then then good. I'll be like, you need to listen to this podcast, learn about BPD. Yeah, totally. I it's funny yeah. every once in a while we'll get somebody that like they say like, "Oh yeah, my counselor like when I was discharged from hospital, they told me to listen to this podcast." And I'm like, "That's so freaking cool that like yeah, clinicians are telling people that like this is a place to come if you're feeling alone and like lost, right?" Well, I'm super curious to hear how your journey goes with that psychiatrist and the diagnosis and everything. So, um please keep us posted. Um, is there anything else you want to share about um accessing care for your like your experiences no I don't I don't think so I think I think again just maybe that self-advocacy piece you know that's the big Mm -hmm. I think that's the big bit of learning for me is to you know and and I I guess self-advocate and or maybe find someone else that can help advocate for you um you know that's that's going to be what my approach will be going into this certainly Totally. Awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck. It has been such a pleasure talking to you for these last two episodes and I hope to see you at Superfeelers, but if not, I get it. The time zones are awful and um, we will definitely see you around. Thank you so much, Laurie. I really appreciate it. Of course. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Hi friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page, The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.